Welcome to Storyboard. I'm Lars. I'm May. Today we're talking about the American mythos on film and the people whose stories are too often left in the margins. We're doing a double round of pitches, including which story from American history we think would make a great miniseries, then we'll leave you with some items on our respective radars. Pull up a chair, baby. Well, 4th of July is coming up, which is always an annual excuse for the United States to tell itself happy bedtime stories about itself. (laughs) And that uh, got us thinking about some stories that should be told, Mm -hmm. we would like to be told. Why hasn't anybody told them? Mm -hmm. So we decided to put our heads together and (laughs) pitch some limited series based on events from U.S. history, full of rainbows and (laughs) roses. Yeah. So I'll just get right into mine. Yeah. So I want a limited series that focuses on the experiences of four families, I think that's a good number, Mm -hmm. uh, during the incarceration of Japanese people in the United States during World Mm -hmm. War II. So this is obviously a huge piece of history, and I know... We learned a lot about it in school on the West Coast, and maybe you did too because of the detention camp that was in Arkansas. I don't know. If uh, no, you did. I, I went to a terrible school, so I, don't, so, I didn't even know no. that happened, honestly. Well, I, most people I know who are not from the West Coast don't really seem to know much about it at all. No. I know um, shockingly little, and it... Uh, yeah, it, it's just shameful. Here's yeah, what, so, and here's okay, so this so, is what I need. Here's, this is what you need. Uh, because while I was looking up films about this, most of them, there's very few, and most of them are about Japanese Americans fighting in war despite being incarcerated, or kids playing baseball despite being incarcerated, or they prominently feature a white man as a romantic lead because somehow <laughs> that's supposed to make the story mm. more compelling. And I did read that the AMC show The Terror, which I think people like, is oh. setting its next season in a detention camp. Oh. But it's focused on this like series of bizarre deaths at the camp and then the efforts of one character to understand this malevolent force behind it, which, hmm. I don't know, I mean... If the force is not literally white supremacy, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, is how it like interesting... a sci-fi thriller? Yeah, like aspect? considering how poorly we've reckoned with the entire the entire chapter in American history, it seems weird to set like a sci-fi thing there. Yeah, surely not. But I supposedly don't know. they're consulting with George Takei, who did write a play about oh. his family's experiences. Hmm. It's called Allegiance. So I mean, they are consulting on it, but I'm just like, okay, let's have a real one that actually talks about. Yeah. <laughs> people's lived experiences yeah. before we go into like the alien yeah. forces or whatever mm-hmm. so so many people in so many different communities and circumstances experienced this violence at the hands of the u.s government it was between 110 and 120,000 people um, peoples from cities farms small towns mm-hmm. everywhere on the west coast and after pearl harbor the FBI actually came in the night and arrested thousands of men in their homes and whisked them away from their families with no details, nothing, often disappearing them for at least a month at a time. Jeez. So that was before Executive Order 9066, which allowed for the creation of these exclusion zones on the West Coast and then successive exclusion orders based on that, which led to the removal and incarceration of people of Japanese ancestry from this entire swath of the West United States, citizens and non-citizens alike. Um, You know, people talk about it in abstract terms, but I think it's important, and I do think it's important to understand the ways in which the government systematically enacted this violence, Mm -hmm. but I also think a limited series would allow us to follow families in, like, different circumstances and kind of get that emotional impact because, um, you know, you could have a family of a prominent dentist in Japantown in Portland because there was a thriving Japantown in Portland uh, before removal. You could have a family on a farm, like in Washington State or Idaho. 
uh, a family in the Japanese fishing community on Terminal Island near the ports in LA, Mm -hmm. which was totally demolished after people were forcibly removed in 1942. And people have almost entirely forgotten about that community, but it was like this thriving community in really in LA, basically. And then maybe there could be another very Americanized family elsewhere in California who are faced with just how shitty and racist their neighbors are in this situation, in this like buildup of hysteria. So for source material, not only do we have many, many great oral histories and stories from people who were incarcerated, uh, but we also have photographs that people took in the camps of their experience of exclusion and imprisonment. Um, Nisei people, so second generation people Mm -hmm. who were incarcerated, tend to be the ones who spoke about it a little more and we have their oral histories more. It's kind of a thing that Issei, the sort of first-generation immigrants, often didn't speak about it. It was a really traumatic, obviously, experience. So um, there's a lot of folks who were, like, kids and teens in the camps who Mm -hmm. now have, like, given their oral histories. And there's a rich body of Hmm. evidence to draw from uh, about these crimes because they are crimes perpetrated by the government. And, you know, when I learned about Japanese incarceration during World War II in school, It was always framed as this never-again scenario that we had atoned (laughs) for, and obviously we see that is not how that's played out in this country. And they're literally reopening some of the same camps to detain people without papers in this country, like right now as we speak. So I do think an exercise in living history and empathy, following on the heels of Ava DuVernay's When They See Us, uh, needs it. this is another thing to shake people awake. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just another example. The past is very much not done. It is very much present. That will, yeah, I was gonna say one of my main picks for a theme is related to that. Yeah. So we'll have more on that in a second. So my mini series. Okay, I think the story of former enslaved person turned abolitionist Ellen and William Craft would make an incredible mini series. So it would start in Georgia. In the 1840s, Ellen was the unacknowledged child of a biracial enslaved person and the plantation's white owner. And she uh, was actually working in the the home and was uh, getting mistaken as the owner's actual like daughter. And the his wife was not having it, mm. so she was like, "Get her out of here." So she the wife gave her as a um, a wedding present, basically uh, <laughs> to yeah. her to a relative. So. Um, at the new home, um, she met uh, and eventually married William Craft, who was enslaved on the same plantation, the second one. Um, he also uh, is important to the story. He made money on the side as a skilled carpenter. So it's going to come back into play how he acquired some, some money. In uh, 1848, they began to plan what has been described as the most ingenious plot in the history of people fleeing enslavement. So wow. I think this would actually make a great story. I can see a lot of like individual beats. Like I even see like how the episode would end. So, okay, this is a wild ride here. <laughs> so Ellen could pass for white because um, she was mostly of European descent. So her and William decide that they would travel north with Ellen posing as the, like, quote-unquote, like, slave owner with William posing as her slave. Mm. So, um, but of course, even then, white women couldn't travel alone, especially with a male companion that's not her husband. So they decided that Ellen should pose as a man. Mm. So, so this is where, like, I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but I think it actually could play as sort of like an absurd, bordering on like absurdist comedy mm-hmm. in certain areas, which would be new to the genre of movies about enslaved people. Okay, so back to the story. They cut her hair short. William bought her fancy men's clothes so she could have the appearance of an upper class uh, slave owner, complete with a top hat and cravat. He also gave her instructions on how to like walk and gesture like a mm. man. Again, like this is some classic yeah. uh, stuff right here. Um, makeover. I mean, it sounds weird to say, but you know, I could see this as a whole scenario here, a whole montage. Um, of her learning all the gestures but to not give themselves away they thought the best way to go undetected would be for Helen who she basically like you know she wasn't allowed an education and so she wasn't able to write her own name or you maybe answer some of these questions that she might be getting along the way so they thought it'd be best if she posed as a severely ill or like injured man so basically her arms in a sling so she like oh i can't write you know i'm sorry my arm might you know (laughs) and they also like bandage up i mean i don't know if all this is true like they ended up giving well we'll get to that but the 
not pictures, the drawings of it. She like, has like bandages around her head. She has like, oh, you know, wow. maybe like dark glasses mm-hmm. on. So I'm just, that's why I'm like, it kind of has to be a comedy because I kind of don't see that playing as a straight up drama. Right, that's just right. my opinion. I don't know. Yeah. So like I said, this way Ellen wouldn't have to talk so much. Um, and it would be slightly more believable why a white man would uh, absolutely like have to travel with William on their way north. I don't know if it was like they told everyone it was like a doctor's appointment. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, so... They escaped, and after days and days, probably weeks, I don't know, old-timey travel times, days of first-class travel on trains and steamships, staying in posh hotels, and even dining with a riverboat captain. Oh. So that's going to be a great scene right there. Um, They made it safely to Philadelphia in the free state of Pennsylvania on Christmas morning. I mean, come on. They get there. The snow is falling. I'm I'm getting chills. Yeah. Okay. So the Philadelphia abolitionists took them under their wing and helped them set up a home in the um, free black community of Beacon Hill in Boston. And they toured uh, New England, gave lectures on their story, mostly with William talking and Ellen just sort of standing on the stage because even <laughs> even there in that time, you know, like even they're like, oh, we're here, we're in the North. With our, but um, Ellen, you can't talk. So right. we'd rather you not speak publicly because you're a woman. Anyway, but then uh, Congress passes the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, which penalized people in free states for helping harbor escaped enslaved people. So the craft's former slave owner, Robert Collins, hired two bounty hunters to track them down and bring them back to Georgia. So again, I could see these, I mean, that would be a a thankless role, but I could just see them as being like two white idiots. Yeah. You know, that's going to be kind of a side story, but I kind of don't even want to focus on them so much in the the miniseries. But anyway, so the abolitionists in Boston really pushed back against these bounty hunters. I even heard stories about they're throwing rotten tomatoes at them and stuff, wow. which I, I appreciate that. Um, and, but thanks to um, these efforts and the network of safe houses, the bounty hunters eventually gave up their search and left. But the crafts didn't feel safe in the north, so they fled to Liverpool, England, where they lived, raised their five kids, and continued their abolitionist work over the next couple of decades. So cut to after the war. Uh, in 1868, the Crafts actually moved back to Georgia, bought 1,800 acres of land near Savannah, and started an agricultural school to educate and employ freedmen. So I wow. just thought full circle, yeah, you know? I mean, I hate circle. when like biopic stuff goes like too long. Yeah. But I feel like you could definitely do a time jump like a full, and get yeah, to that. Like another um, chapter. It's interesting because, you know, jury nullification has been back in the news as a discussion for people who assist undocumented people oh, God, because basically it's jury nullification is when a jury refuses to convict on the grounds that the law itself is unjust and mm-hmm. one of the most famous examples mm-hmm. is juries in the north refusing to convict people under the fugitive oh, okay. slave act okay. yeah so there is precedent very prescient precedent mm-hmm. for focusing on that for yeah, example yeah. yeah totally so i can actually see this as like a donald glover a project kind of has Atlanta. I could see like the absurdist humor oh, of it I all, see. you know. Um, I think you'd be able to find again, like as much humor as you can find in such a story, but more just because of like their travel. humanity, the yeah, more the humanity, the, the you know, making them yeah. three dimensional characters yeah, exactly. rather than playing it off as like just a straight drama. Um, especially, like I said, the, you know, Ellen being wrapped in bandages, having a dinner with the riverboat captain, and William basically like. <laughs> Uh, you know, like being her mouthpiece. It sounds like an episode of Drunk History or something. Yeah, like you I can mean, imagine somebody, it, yeah, it somebody well drunk on wine being yeah. like, and then the riverboat captain. Said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I don't know about you, Lars, but I've been down on the United States for pretty much as long as I can remember, even before (laughs) discovering the punk music that certainly (laughs) set my course irrevocably. (laughs) I mean, you may be saying to yourself, as I do, that such a country that is built on such wickedness Mm -hmm. and violence on the willful systematic oppression of the many for the profit of the very few since its very origins, such a country should surely sink into the earth and return this land to the people it was stolen from. But I'm going to do a Stephen A. but here. That's a little, if, if you don't 
follow sports that may not okay. make sense. Yeah, I was like, well, Stephen A. Smith. And I'm like, oh, but yeah. yeah, we do have to avoid, I think, the single story problem. So what am I talking about? Okay. At work, my mm-hmm. friend David has actually been leading sessions related to the podcast Seeing White, which, side note, is essential listening for all white people mm. in the United States. Um, but we've closed the series with this discussion of the single story problem. Basically, it's this idea that's been discussed by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, among others, about this kind of reductionist thinking that collapses complex societies and communities of people into one single narrative. Mm-hmm. So the United States as an archvillain in world and domestic history is one very real and true story. And it's the story of a country guided by white identity politics. And that's not the only story mm-hmm. here. So there are so many stories by so many people who live here, good mm-hmm. people with very individual stories, and these are also narratives mm-hmm. of the U.S., I would say. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know, at the risk of sounding like a try-hard high school (laughs) English teacher, (laughs) I did focus on movies that kind of fit into uh, like a Langston Hughes I2 theme from his 1926 poem, In the Weary Blues. Mm -hmm. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well. And grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody'll dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful we are and be ashamed. I too am America. Sorry, sometimes I can no. be <laughs> embarrassingly <laughs> earnest, but. I'm not really working on that. I think we need more earnestness. Uh, it's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Yeah. This is the show for it. You know? It is true. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, guys. There, this is not the usual costumes no. and noir. Or at least for, these are my, these. this is yeah. for me. This is my, my truth. It's a noir, erotic, lots erotic of co- costumes. Yeah, Wigs. Exactly. Wigs. Uh, yeah. So today yeah. is, we're, you know, pivoting and we're doing a little more sincere, earnest stuff here so i'm excited yeah so what do you got okay so my first pick is one that i actually learned of thanks to sean mckiernan whose all units podcast project just wrapped mm. up <gasps> okay so he hosted a screening of ivan dixon's 1973 film the spook who sat by the door that was in yeah. dublin and like i do with all cool screenings that i can't <laughs> attend in person i put that movie on the meg's couch screening series <laughs> The movie is based on a political fiction novel of the same name by Sam Greenlee about the first black man in the CIA. Mm. So basically to check the boxes of affirmative action, the agency recruits a class of black trainees with the intention of failing them all out. But (laughs) because... They can kind of basically at the end say, oh, we made a hiring effort, but none of them them made the grade. What can we do? Uh, So this is a very blunt and sharp humor depiction of what, honestly, I think is still the way a lot of organizations do their equitable hiring, Mm -hmm. um, quote, equitable hiring. (laughs) But so one man, Dan Freeman, Freeman, uh, (laughs) played by Lawrence Cook, makes it all the way through and into the role of, quote, a reproduction center section chief, which turns out to be working in the copy room. Like they basically are like, you made it through. (laughs) And actually, the title of The Spook Who Sat by the Door plays on the word as a racial slur, which I admit I wasn't aware of that until reading that about this film, uh-huh. as well as a slang for spy. And it's a reference oh. to the way that the CIA showed off this phony integration plan very conspicuously with, like, this one black officer. Mm-hmm. So Freeman, the main character, then leaves the agency under the pretext of going back to Chicago to work in nonprofit uplift work. But in reality, he takes all the methods and training in guerrilla warfare that he received in the CIA to lead an uprising against Ooh. the police, the city, and the Shit. government overall, following the guerrilla cell model of warfare. Uh, so the story's creator, Sam Greenlee, himself worked for the U.S. Information Agency, so had some reality <laughs> to base this fictional narrative on. And he also wrote the screenplay. 
Uh, the director, Ivan Dixon, starred in Nothing But a Man in 1964. Oh, my God. It's so yeah. Good. It's so good. Yeah. I almost did that as one of mine. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. you've got hey, a connection hey, there hey, because yeah. then he directed this movie. Mm-hmm. And this was his oh, second yeah. directorial effort after 1970's True, 1972's Trouble Man. Oh, the soundtrack is by Herbie Hancock. There's a lot of talent involved in this movie. <laughs> So the movie has a very clearly radical premise, and it was produced independently because no studios wanted to work with these black filmmakers with this radical movie. Um, Even though it was released by United Artists, it was pulled from theaters shortly after its release, and its prints were destroyed, and the negatives were stored under a different name. So Greenlee himself said the FBI was involved, obviously, in the seizure and suppression, and that sounds right in terms of the Cointelpro playbook. There's just a lot of cool shit about this movie, <laughs> yeah. but I think something I especially like is that it grapples with the complexities of social unrest and revolution, and rather than trying to understand the why behind revolutionary action, it's more of like a why the hell not? Why isn't this already happening? Mm-hmm. At one point, Freeman says, this is about loving freedom enough to fight and die for it, and what could be more American than that? Exactly. So... I think all of mine are kind of not so much straight up like fictional narratives. They're kind of essay docudrama. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of they're more like documents of like a time and a place. Mm-hmm. And so a lot or a couple of these are ones I've been wanting to see for a while and I was able to track down. So the first one is The Exiles by Kent McKenzie, um, filmed in the late 50s but released in 1961. The film shows the day in life of a group of 20 something Native Americans in the Bunker Hill neighborhood of Los Angeles. The production, like I said, was in the realm of a docudrama where the leads recorded voiceover of like real-life interviews over really well-shot reenactments of them sort of living out the very things they're talking about. Um, the boys are stirring up trouble and picking up women in bars while their uh, girlfriends and wives are taking these, like lonely walks around town and staying home waiting for them. Uh, I'm not... Um, 100% sure of their tribal affiliation because there's not not a ton written about this film, which is really sad. But I assume it's Comanche because they mention in the voiceover that they're from Oklahoma. And one of the rock and roll songs on the soundtrack is titled Comanche. So um, I'm assuming that, though I'm not 100% sure. It's a self-aware document of a cycle of loneliness, alienation, and abuse put upon the shoulders of Comanche youth um, that are torn between the values of their parents and of the modern lifestyles of, like, white American urban life. Um, Kent McKenzie was a British-born American who only directed a handful of documentaries and died at age 50. Um, But with this film, he set his lens on the frustration of Native Americans half a century before most white dummies could be bothered to, like, give a single shit. Uh, I mean, (laughs) he was uh, merely a fly-on-the-wall witness working in full collaboration with pretty much an entire like Native American cast. Although this um, has been in the National Film Registry for the last 10 years, uh, it's very hard to find. And so I guess maybe try to find it like, with like an interlibrary loan situation. Yeah. Uh, because I found this random website that was like archive.org or something. That's oh, how I found it. Internet yeah. Archive. Oh, okay, is that what that is? That's, okay. okay, so okay. it is not a random website. Archive, Internet okay. Archive. <laughs> a lot of... It looks um, shady. Academic (laughs) institutions, government institutions, they will actually share their digitized materials via that so that it's part of the public commons. So it's not a random website. Okay. It's actually a very legitimate <laughs> okay. website. Sure. Just, I'm just going to put that. I'm just going to put yeah. a plug in for that. Yeah. Um, because I've watched a few things uh, mm-hmm. on that as well. Um, I should yeah. say that the spook who sat by the door side note is on YouTube. Okay. That's how I watch it. Good to know because I definitely want to yeah. see it. Okay. So I really, truly, madly, deeply loved my next pick. And I came into it a bit unawares, although I know you've seen it. So I watched Chan is Missing from 1982. Mm. It was directed by Wayne Wang. It was one of his early, maybe second movie, or maybe a debut. You really would not have guessed where his career ended up because (laughs) the Joy Luck Club was his big break, and his other big movies are Made in Manhattan with J-Lo. Okay. And Because of Winn-Dixie, which our family dog looks like Winn-Dixie a bit, (laughs) so I have seen that one. Wait, is Dave Matthews in that? My, I, my brain's telling I me that's true, know. but I don't know. Look it up. Okay. Look it up. 
We'll have to look it up on IMDb okay. after this. Um, he's also made weirder ones, like The Center of the World from 2001, which he made with Paul Oster and Miranda July and has, like, Peter Skarsgård. It's really weird. Hmm. Um, he's all over the place. But in 1982, he made this groundbreaking movie, which actually was this fun, inventive, but realistic vision of a Chinese-American community made by a Chinese-American filmmaker. So again, it's I'm all about people making yeah. films about their own communities and actually getting those getting funded. Uh, so Chan is Missing is this existential detective Ooh, film I love it. set in Chinatown in San Francisco where the main character slash narrator Joe and his nephew Steve go in search of their friend Chan who's disappeared with $4,000 of their money, <laughs> oh. which they were going to use to get their own cab uh, sub-license. Oh, yeah. Don't really understand how cabs work. Yeah. That was made clear. <laughs> uh, so what follows is pretty much just Joe and Steve tracking Chan's last one whereabouts all over town. And it's this very noirish kind of mm. setup and styling as well. And there's a lot of winks to film history, like with the third man, and to famous detectives in pop culture, not least of which is Charlie Chan and this long-running <laughs> Orientalist trope of his yeah. like Eastern wisdom. Like yeah. they they play with that a lot. Their friend Chan is this elusive, sort of hard to pin down figure. Like every person they interact with has a different story of oh, who yeah. Chan is. And how he identifies with his community here versus back in China. And it just spirals into more and more of this impossible puzzle. And even for this one guy, there's no single story, right? Like, even for one person, there's just so many layers. So aside from a style that I think is incredibly fresh and fluid and very inventive when you think, when you look at the date, like the year that it came out, there's almost this documentary quality to a lot of the shots of Chinatown, I felt like, Mm -hmm. Uh, just showing its community members. It's really documenting this moment in time in a community that now is increasingly under pressure of displacement in a city that's just being utterly gutted. Uh, And one thing that Wang does that I really like is he'll have extended bits of dialogue that are not subtitled. So they'll be speaking in, I'm actually not sure if it's Mandarin or Cantonese, but they'll be speaking in. It's just not, it's just like, nope, this is not for white audiences. I like that in movies. Yeah, I appreciate that. I do too. Um, It's just this really loving depiction of all the conflicts and complexities Mm -hmm. in a community and also what being Chinese and Chinese American might mean to so many different people at that moment in time. But it's also just wry and playful and like really gorgeous to look at. And it's on Canopy. I think it's really the best thing I've seen in a while. And goddamn, we really, (laughs) really need more films made by Asian American filmmakers centered on various Asian American experiences. Yeah. It cannot be that Wayne Wang makes this movie in 1982 <laughs> and then there's just years of not much breaking through. Yeah. And I know there are filmmakers who are ready and dying to tell these stories, but what needs to happen is these projects need to get funded. Yes. No one needs the hereditary guy to make Wicker Man 2 electric boogaloo. <laughs> like, we don't need to see that. <laughs> no. But what we do need is more stories that reflect the experiences of the 17 million Asian American people of yeah. all different countries of origin and families. That's what we need. I anyway, that's my. Heartily agree. Just I feel frustrated, like yeah. watching that movie, just, and then I'm like, yeah. why didn't why? that? That did not translate to this explosion of yeah. Asian American cinema. No, I mean we know why, because because everything sucks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I am excited that we we got a noir in there. So that's yes. just that's just yes. you know I'm excited. So. My next one is Tongues Untied from 1989. It's a 55-minute experimental essay film by director Marlon Riggs. Um, And I have seen one other film by him, Ethnic Notions, which I almost talked about. But then I was like, well, I want to see something new. So um, this was on Canopy as well. So about being a black queer man in America and simultaneously being either shunned or physically abused by both the straight black community and the uh, white gay community feeling he has to choose a side while at the same time neither side is fully accepting of him it's highly charged politically while also being poetic and unapologetically sexual on his own terms in this amazing sort of a jean genet sort of way the film seeks in the director's own words to shatter the nation's brutalizing silence on matters of sexual and racial differences So I found this out about it after I watched it. Upon its release in 1989, there was um, a huge controversy surrounding its partial funding by the National Endowment for the Arts and its scheduled airing on PBS. Um, Despite a bunch of artless Philistine conservatives making waves, PBS stood behind Riggs and aired Tongues Untied. 
And Riggs said that, ironically, the censorship campaign actually allotted it way more publicity, yeah, which usually happens, including it unlawfully being included in a presidential campaign ad for Pat Buchanan. Oh, my God. I know. Just like, look, hey, we got to stop <sighs> this kind of stuff. <laughs> Whatever. Boy, anyway. Yeah. But um, he was like uh, sent like a cease and desist or sued or whatever, yeah. so he had to remove it. 2019 marks the 30th anniversary of the film and the 25th anniversary of director Marlon Riggs' death from AIDS. Last month, it was announced that the film will be receiving a special video tribute at this year's Peabody Awards in honor of the 30th anniversary. So, kind of bring it full circle yeah, there. Yeah, I've had it on my watch list. I'm mm-hmm. going to watch it. So if you're a fan of Pose, I think it's required viewing. And also, Paris is Burning, I think, came out the next year. So it actually kind of mentions, like, ballroom culture and voguing and such. And so I was like, oh, wait a minute. It was before uh, Paris is Burning came out. And it was actually probably someone who was closer to the community than the um, distance that the person who made Mm -hmm. Paris is Burning. Yeah, it just sort of broached lightly. But I was like, all right. Oh, damn, like the year before. Yeah. Awesome. So... I think I described my previous pick as having some documentary qualities. This one is actually a documentary. Mm -hmm. My last pick is Smokin' Fish, which is the 2011 documentary co-directed by Corey Mann and Luke Griswold Turgis. And it did actually originally air on PBS. We're like, oh, we're all in on PBS. We're on a (laughs) PBS, public archives, all that shit. Libraries. (laughs) So it follows Mann, actually, who is a Tlingit businessman living in Juneau, Alaska, over one summer as he closes up shop to spend a few months in, am I going to pronounce this correctly, Klukwan in Alaska, where his extended family lives to catch and smoke salmon as part of this family and community tradition. So on the one hand, there's the individual story of man, who has quite a few interesting biographical details and stories on his own. Uh, He was born in Alaska, but was taken to California by his mom. And then his aunt was like, no, no, he can't be in California. Like, he needs to be with his his family in Alaska. So she retrieved him, brought him back, uh, was raised back in Alaska by various extended family members, this big group of women, which he explains is logical because Slingit families are matrilineal. Mm. He's always got a few businesses going on. When I said that he's got some interesting stories, like he ends up traveling the world and gets in, meets some weird shady characters trying to get him into arms dealing. But then he is like, okay, this is too much for me. I'm just going to go back to my home state. And, you know, he's got a few businesses at the time of the documentary. And there's this interesting intersection with globalization and outsourcing and selling mass market versions of native inspired designs while being a native person himself. Um, he's also got to deal with issues he runs into with the IRS and that government interaction, that impediment really, uh, is an echo of the other aspect of the story, which is kind of more ethnographic details about Slingit history and contemporary life as told by man's relatives themselves. So his aunts and um, cousins, he's got like little nephews who are in the film. So not only do we have the kind of historical interaction of theft and lies and disease brought by the Russians and later the Western European colonizers. Mm -hmm. But there are contemporary issues like the fact that U.S. Fish and Wildlife just puts these ridiculous limits on the number of salmon so that Slingit people can fish in a season. And if you think that's about conservation, that's laughable (laughs) because of what they allow very large fishing operations to get away with. This is not specifically a story about injustice. It's really about this family and community and an individual, too, who all retain traditional practices like fishing, building smokehouses, and trading in the face of a lot of hardships. They maintain resilience and this sense of joy and humor. And, you know, at the end of the film... Uh, man's aunt is talking with the filmmaker, probably Lucas. Uh, and basically she says, you know, there's a great transition coming, basically climate change. <laughs> and all your shit, referring to European colonizer society, is going to be toast. But we at people are used to living off the land and making do with less. And essentially we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And then she just laughs. <laughs> and you just got to be like, fair enough. Yeah. That sounds about right to me. Yeah. Well, uh, my last one, um, I think I found out about it from Story of Film, that really long 13-episode documentary made by Mark Cousins um, a while back. So I'd never heard of it, and I really haven't heard about it in any other capacity, which is a shame because it's amazing. So Topaz, 1945 documentary shot by Dave Tetsuno. 
Topaz has a very non-traditional origin. It's essentially uh, 48 minutes of home movies secretly photographed by a man in a Japanese detention camp in Topaz, Utah, from 1942 till his release in 1945. The version I saw on YouTube was black and white with voiceover from the director that I guess he recorded in the 90s. Um, but I believe the original version was in color and does not have sound of any kind. Mm. But with a movie like this, I, you know, I decided it's less important to get the director's cut right. um, and more important to get as much of Dave's story as possible. Yeah. A little background on Dave that I found out uh, about after watching the film. He was a Berkeley graduate who worked at the San Francisco department store that his dad started in 1902. Um, he was literally living the American dream, educated community leader, running a family business, helping the local community uh, and economy. Anyway, in his very um, lovely dad voice, he explained that he and his family, his parents, his wife, and their children were forcibly relocated from their lives in California to a detention camp in Utah. In the camp, he worked in the general store, um, which is how he was able to smuggle the film in and out. He occasionally taught in the school there and was pretty involved in the Protestant church. A few standout moments were um, the the folks on his, I guess it was divided into blocks. So he was on mm -hmm. block, I believe it was 41. So the, the people on his block making mochi. Another moment was when his brother, who was fighting in the U.S. military, oh, yeah. came to visit them in the camp. And I was just like, wait a minute. Wait, oh, what? Yeah. They, like, they were fully, the government like came and were like, oh, we need you to serve. You're in a Yeah, we need your body. Camp. Right, but correct. also, yeah, anyway, yeah. explain that one to me. And another sad moment, which is really heartbreaking, was uh, when one winter, um, and also keep in mind, they're from California, so they're not used to like harsh winters yeah. or whatever. So one winter, they um, created this little frozen lake for ice skating but i guess they just basically pushed some, some water out of it and created this little lake but only one girl in the camp had ice skates so uh there's just like a shot of her ice skating by herself mm -hmm. on this tiny pond and it's just really heartbreaking well a great uh source material for our limited series exactly there's just and that's something that i think is so interesting and so beautiful there are so many people that found ways to document you know photos mm -hmm. film yeah. you know just had to hide it but yeah. Um, actually, weirdly, the government that was in charge of relocation actually hired Dorothea Lange, who's, like, best known for, like, the her Dust Bowl photographs. They mm. hired her to document the process, and she got there, <laughs> and she found herself at odds, obviously, with her employer, the government. Yeah. She was like, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah. And so she took a ton of pictures, beautiful pictures of people, yeah. and then they were all censored by the government. And I don't think they came out until, like, the 70s yeah. when huh. they were, like, shown an exhibition. But even an external person acting on behalf of the government was like, even just documenting this, this is wrong. Yeah, this feels They're wrong. Like, oh, we'll yeah. just keep that, keep yep. that to ourselves. So, yeah. so. Oh, and I just wanted to add, uh, Topaz was added to the Library of Congress in 1996 and was the second amateur film ever to be added to the National Film Registry. And I was just going to ask you, what do you think the first amateur film added to the, the film registry was? Amateur film. Amateur film. I'm not going to guess it. Okay. I'm not going to guess it. This is a Pruder it. film. Because it took me, when they when I was reading oh, that, I was like, I was like, what, what would be the number one? I was like, oh, it's a Pruder. Sorry, that just was sense. like a little bit of yeah. <laughs> trivia. Like, yeah, little, I was just like, speaking of American history ooh, films. Yeah. I would, yeah. If I, I guess if I had really sat there. Yeah, with, really thought. Like five minutes like, of silence. Amateur? I know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, it took me a while, too. I'm like, oh, yeah. I was going to think of something. I was like, what artist had, like, it, like you know, <laughs> early film access? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, mm -hmm. was there a dog on a bicycle? <laughs> yeah, it was like some, some Thomas Edison shit. Yeah, I don't know, like, so like Topsy. Like being electrocuted, the That's, elephant. Yeah. Anyway, I was picturing. <laughs> oh. All right, well, it's pitch time. This is where we create an original pitch on the fly. We each bring two elements unbeknownst to each other, an actor and like a theme or a trope. So I'm leading this week and I usually bring like a dumb title that I found along the way. And so this is one that it's kind of been in my head for a while because I hate it. So, I mean, <laughs> that sounds weird, but this, again, working title. Yeah. This is just, you know, something to put at the top of the, the masking script. Masking tape, yeah. Yeah, and all the masking tape of the reels. Uh, 
my god, I hate this. Twice Upon a Yesterday. No. It is a Lena Headey film from 1999 that it might be the best rom-com of all no, time. No, it's impossible with a title that like title that. that title irritates me Absolutely. to no end. No. I don't know. I, I, I see it every once in a while and I'm like, what? It's overworked. It's overworked into senselessness. Yeah, That's exactly. That's what it was. <laughs> so yeah. it has nothing to do with the story. Yeah, okay. Or maybe it does. I don't oh. know. We'll see. Okay. Now, um. It doesn't. Um, <laughs> so I'm leading, and I've got kind of, sometimes I do general sort of stories, but this one's specific. Um, I was listening to a true crime podcast about this, and I thought it was very interesting. It kind of ties back to our theme. This is about the disappearance of Sneha Phillip. She was a doctor who was last seen on September 10th, 2001, and um, her partner only officially became concerned about her disappearance the next morning. Like, she didn't come home. Um, and he was like, okay, I'm going to look for her the next morning on September 11th. <gasps> oh, wait a minute. Uh, September 11th, 2001 <laughs> happened. So the search for Sneha became literally impossible. And also they lived near the Twin Towers. And also she was known for, like, staying out late, drinking with friends. So basically there's a few possibilities that she actually, like, there was, like, a foul play, and she was, like, something happened on September 10th, and that's why she didn't come home. Mm -hmm. That's kind of my theory. I think that's actually more, I mean, quote-unquote interesting. There's a possibility that maybe she, okay, she had a late one, you know. Um, she's a doctor. She has a weird hour. She's out drinking with friends, and then maybe she came home, at, like, early uh, at, like, 7.30 or 8, and then maybe she saw the stuff happening nearby at the towers, and she's, like, hey, I'm a doctor, I'm going to go oh. help them. And then she got caught. And she actually is on, like, the, the list of 9-11, um, like, dead. So hmm. officially she, I mean, with no evidence, like, right. her family just really pushed that she was on that list. There's also the possibility, a lot of people think this, but I don't think it's true, that she was like, oh, wait, this is my opportunity to, like, disappear, just, just peace out, you know, which I think that's... I don't think Probably people... bullshit. Yeah. Um, I think it's actually more interesting or weird if she went missing on the 10th, again, by her own means or probably, or, you know, foul play. So the actor I had in mind for this was Priyanka Chopra. I think she's married to, like, a Jonas brother. So what what wrench are you going to throw in the mix for this very important, <gasps> somber story? Well, <laughs> let's start with my actor, because at least that can fit okay maybe there's a detective <laughs> so, or something yeah okay. so my actor is mj rodriguez who plays blanca on <gasps> pose okay. okay so i feel like mm. she would be great as a detective yes yeah she i mean blanca's one of my favorite characters mm. on tv yeah. and i think that she'd be like the tough caring but mm -hmm. suspicious firm kind of yes. detective investigating it um, my element, <laughs> uh -oh. I want, I don't know if this is going to work. Okay. We'll I want everything, here. like the sort of like film style, like uh -huh. cinematography and like style aesthetic to look like basically she double. <laughs> so like Meryl Streep's oh like God. palace and like suits and like hats. Okay, so and dressing style, gowns. Okay. So maybe it can be like the early 2000s version of that. Okay. Where she's, everything mm. is, you know, you said she's like a party girl. So maybe yeah. she's always got like flouncy, like fuchsia satin dressing gowns okay. and like chic little heels. So maybe we see in three parts, like the possibilities. And so oh. maybe even through different people's eyes, like as, as I keep saying Blanca. <laughs> MJ. 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 Interviews people, maybe. There's a movie. There's a, uh, there's oh, a British. Oh, speaking of the single story thing, we're like seeing a bunch of different, it could be like Chan is Missing. Yeah. Where there's like, okay, okay this there's is also a British was. movie called like Sapphire, I believe, which is like, no, wait, maybe that's not the one. But there's some, there's a couple, there's a British movie I'm trying to think of where, yeah, if someone interviews different people in their life, they're like, oh, she's a bitch. Or like, oh, she's an angel or whatever. Yeah. So like you get. Or like how in Vagabond, yeah. like everyone, yes, the girl okay, interacts exactly. with, yeah, is like. Okay, so MJ different is things. interviewing different people, trying to suss this out. And then, like, I don't know what time this is after 9-11. So maybe she is, like, I'm trying to think. Like, the one detective that's like, no, wait, she didn't. Yeah. I think she went missing on the 10th or that's something. That's right. She's she interviews the different one people. person who's, Maybe she's like, doing it on her off this. time. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, okay. 
I can see that working. I and can then, see like, that. in one scenario, Sneha is like prim and like, what am I trying to say? Yeah, in an outfit that's all she's, she doubled yeah, out. She's, <laughs> yeah. she's committed some kind of great fraud and yeah. she's like, mm. that's what one person's interview yeah. when they're describing it, it's like yes. their voiceover and you see mm. her like buying her like yeah. trunks full of clothes. Well, that was the last place she was seen actually was in. Um, a department store like buying stuff. It was like for like a bachelorette party oh, for really? someone else. So, so like her shopping is literally like historically okay. accurate. That was, so like, then the they're just part. they're carrying it forward, being like, I mm-hmm. thought it seemed like she was shopping for a lot more than a party. Yeah, she like was... lingerie or whatever. Yeah, I love it. Like, sorry, but if a woman buys lingerie, it's like, what? then she deserves to disappear. <laughs> yeah. It's like anyway, <laughs> is that a trope in true crime? I don't know. Just like. She- She's a slut. I don't oh, know. Oh, I see. You know I see what, I mean? what you're saying. Like, right. Like, she clearly wasn't like, just, like, some sexual? innocent. Like, uh, well, then she deserves yeah, you're right. what she got. I don't yeah, know. Anyway. The classic slut shame. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So she devil is for cinematography. Sure, why not? Let's just put a little colors. Vaseline on the lens. <laughs> Vaseline. Oh, see, I was thinking it's, like, striking colors. It is, it I is, like, it is really devil. bold colors, like, okay. Pepto pink and okay. salmon pink and fuchsias right. and, like, kind of a pale petal pink. But then okay. I just, there's a little bit of kind of that, you know, that glow, sort of, like, heathers or oh, whatever, totally. whatever they're White doing. diamonds lens. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so maybe that's yeah. also part of the fantasy just sequence. The, or the, the vibe, the look yeah. of it all. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can make this work. I think we can at least we'll we'll encapsulate that aspect in the one the one alternate scenario that, yeah. because totally. I feel like I can also see you know MJ is more the um, Olivia Benson who's like no yeah. I'm gonna solve no. this yeah exactly yeah. I love it okay well it. we kind of made it work a I think bit. maybe. <laughs> Alright, so now it's time for our radar section, things we've watched or intend to watch or things we're warning you against. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a real grab bag. So um, for me, I've got Bless Their Little Hearts, a 1983 film by Billy Woodbury, written and shot by Charles Burnett, mm. that has what looks like some serious like killer sheep vibes. Um, I was trying to track it down for today's show. Um, I couldn't. It was really hard to find. But I, I want to seek it out. Um, also, with uh, the theme of today's show, I was reminded of Studs Terkel, a writer-historian who's known for his extensive interviews with just like everyday people creating this unique oral history of the latter half of the 20th century. So I just want to, he's always kind of been on my mind, and I want to seek out some of his, like, interviews with people. I've got a podcast pitch for you. Okay. Uh, okay, sorry, we're doing, like, triple pitches. <laughs> <laughs> the triple crown pitch. Yeah. Okay, so after we discussed Smooth Talk a while back, um, and the real-life killer it was based on, the ghoulish Charles Smid, um, it got me thinking, okay, a true crime and film TV podcast that researches and discusses the real-life stories that were the inspiration for crime oh. films and TV and even, like, individual TV episodes mm-hmm. of, like, Law & Order, Criminal Minds, or whatever. So I got a couple titles for it. Okay. So I was thinking, obviously, like, ripped from the headlines, but then I'm like, what about if it's, like, R.I.P.? Like, ripped in, like, R.I.P. with, like, a... Apostrophe D? Maybe that's too much stuff. I feel like no. that's... R.I.P. No, no. Okay. <laughs> anyway, or like based on a true story. But I was like, ripped from the headlines, though. I'm like, that... Yeah. Honestly, that would be like a fantastic show. Because that way you get like your movie stuff, your TV talk, and then some true crime talk, which everyone apparently loves. Anyway. Except for me, I guess. Oh, really? Okay. Well, yeah. I think you would still like this. I would Maybe like it's the related film to aspect. TV. Okay. Yeah. I think yeah. would like if it was like more of like a... Like a history context yeah. dive on, yeah. you know, even short, because it's like with Smooth Talk, it was like based on the Joyce Carol Oates yeah, short exactly. story. So it's like, you know, you kind of get, you can kind of go through the layers and trace mm-hmm. like how it went. Yeah. yeah I anyway, can see that. it might already exist. I don't know, but I just want to put it the, out there. In the sludge of the vast yeah, sludge of juice. <laughs> uh, I just want to put it out there so that way I look like a genius if it does happen. Yeah. And then I maybe can That's sue for fair. royalties or something. Yeah. All those podcast royalties. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all that, all those squares mm. and. <laughs> mattresses you can you can ask for okay all right how about you well this isn't you saying this made me uh reminded me that earlier i was telling joel that i want more 
sports podcasts hosted by women because mm-hmm. I don't like uh, podcasts that have multiple men talking. That's not <laughs> what I'm into. And I, my favorite <laughs> podcasts are sports podcasts. They happen to be hosted by men, but there's some great women's sports journalists that I would absolutely love to mm-hmm. um, have their own and somebody do that. That's not there's a pitch. Just a that's just on my radar. Pitch. Yeah, just <laughs> my radar is like a woman. Like I, yeah. Okay. So just I'm putting that out into the world. How about a woman that does the podcast foul played? Like again, true oh, crime. Yeah. Wait, I'm gonna really shoot her in the I won't. I'm just pitching that out there in the universe. <laughs> you're like trying to. You're trying to force true crime into my mind by combining in. it with things that I love. Yeah. Films, hey, sports. Russian history <laughs> yeah. or um, Hallmark movies. <laughs> you're like, fancy dogs. I'm trying, <laughs> dog shows? I'm trying to really... Yeah, you're trying to get, get all my, Ooh, get all my notes. Oh, a dog show. Oh, okay, oh, sorry. Okay, well, we'll save <laughs> so that. That's another pitch. Yeah, okay. that's another pitch. It's a pitch for another day. Yeah. Uh, so my radar, first of all, Pose, the best show on television, is Ooh, back, and you yes. better be watching. Mm. So if you need to catch up, season one of Pose is on Netflix, but season two, episode one, was just like this incredible living, breathing history lesson about the origins of voguing, ballroom, <gasps> act up, mm. and it's just heartbreaking and gorgeous, and I can't wait to put myself through the emotional ringer with the show again. <laughs> yeah. Really believe the hype. It is that good. It is that good. So good. Yeah, if it doesn't win all the Emmys, we ride at midnight <laughs> uh i also watched frederick wiseman's the store which you told me about oh, yeah. uh, it's the 1983 or 4 documentary mm. about the flagship neiman marcus store and its inner workings as well as the corporate headquarters this might just be my headspace but if you want an intimate and totally unobtrusive look at the kind of uh vapidity <laughs> and uncritical greed that drove the absolute moral catastrophe of reagan's america mm-hmm. interwoven with scenes of the working people actually Actually keeping the store running, the store would be the film Mm -hmm. for you. Since department stores are all, like right now, systematically being bought by hedge (laughs) funds and gutted for assets and left for dead, Mm -hmm. it's also this interesting kind of document into this particular brief moment in time in late Mm -hmm. capitalism. Uh, The people in this documentary all have pensions and they stayed with the same company for decades. That's basically non-existent anymore. That sounds like a fairy tale, (laughs) Uh, especially in retail, but it really affects... Everywhere that predatory capital has it has its tentacles, which mm-hmm. is essentially all aspects of our society. And for me, it just made me want to listen to crass all day. But depending on your tendencies, you may have a different takeaway. <laughs> um, also, my radar. So this is so exciting. My friend Kate <laughs> sent me an article in New York Magazine about Sandy Tan, director <gasps> of one of my favorite movies of the past year, Shirkers. And she's adapting a Leaf by Tuman's novel, The Idiot, which was my favorite novel Ooh. of 2017, written by, I mean, one of the best, absolute best contemporary writers. So I was freaking out when I heard the news. I think I texted you immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was like, murderer's row of, like, faves, <laughs> yeah. you know? It was. It was really talking about hitting all, hitting all my notes. So <laughs> it's just this gorgeously written, hilarious, introspective, adept novel, and it will be Almost impossible to adapt, but I believe that Sandy Tan can do it. <laughs> she said, so, "I read an article. She's got a. She's got she's a. Got a she's clearly theory. been pitching. She's, a, yeah. she's been. Yeah. She's clearly been pitching because she's like, yeah. it's like this mixed with this mixed with this, and I was like, mm, ah, I can yeah, see yeah, yeah. who you've been who you've been talking <laughs> to about this. Yeah. So I have faith. We can. <laughs> let's. Yeah. We need so much more joy. Let's call that forth in the world. Well, thanks for joining. You can subscribe to keep up with us or drop us a line at storyboardpod at gmail.com, via Instagram at storyboardpodcast, or via Twitter at storyboard underscore pod. All the links of the movies we talk about are in the episode notes. Till next time. I want a full minute. <laughs> like a 20 hour. <laughs> Yeah. Ten episodes, two hours each. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ken Burns American Experience ice cream. <laughs> it's called ice cream, you scream, we all scream for history. <laughs>